Well, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this morning we're asking the question, does the problem of suffering in the world prove that there is no God? Following the Asian tsunami on Boxing Day 2004, in which 250,000 people perished, one reporter wrote this, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Do you see what he's saying? How could a good and all-powerful God allow these sort of things to happen? He's either not good or he's not powerful. See, for many people, evil and suffering proves that there is no God, or at least that the God of the Bible doesn't exist. Uh, George Michael, in his uh, album Patience, uh, asks uh, this question. Is it my imagination or did God already leave the table? Such destruction... His point is quite subtle, which is a surprise for George Michael, but uh, his point is quite subtle, actually. He's saying, you can say that God exists, but look around at the pain and heartache and chaos in this world, and you have to conclude that God isn't involved in his world. You see, the problem of suffering raises huge questions. And, of course, it's not just a question for unbelievers. Christians suffer, and as we do, we are sure to question the character and power of God. Indeed, as we thought last week, the problem of suffering is a huge problem for Christians. Remember these words uh, that I quoted last week from Christopher Wright. He said this, For Christians, evil really is a problem at every level. On the basis of what the Bible teaches unequivocally and repeatedly, we Christians believe that there is one living God, the creator of the whole universe, who is personal, good, loving, omnipotent and sovereign over all that happens. Once you're convinced of those great biblical truths about the living God, you cannot but have a massive problem with the existence of evil. Christians have a problem with the issue of suffering and evil. And of course it's not just an intellectual problem either. Christians get dismissed at work for standing up for Christ. Why does God allow that? The most devoted Christian is not only uh, struck down with a terminal illness, but suffers the most severe agony through it. Why does God do that? Whole churches are destroyed by evil dictators. Where is God then? Not just an intellectual issue, is it? Christians suffer, and when we do, we may well have our faith shaken right down to our boots. Uh, Jerry Sitzer, who wrote this book, A Grace Disguised, uh, is a committed Christian man, was a committed committed Christian man before he wrote this, uh, a professor of theology, Uh, It's a great book. It's been very moving as I've been reading it. It's one of the two books that we've suggested you read um, uh, as we go through this series. He wrote this book, A Grace Disguised, following the death of his wife, his mother and one of his daughters in a a car accident. He was in the car along with uh, the rest of his family, uh, three other children, uh, and uh, his wife, his mother and his daughter died in that car crash. It was caused by a drunk driver. Very moving. He reflects on the accident and as he does, he writes this. I wondered if I could trust a God who allowed or caused suffering in the first place. My loss made God seem distant and unfriendly, as if he lacked the power or the desire to prevent or deliver me from suffering. I was not sure I could trust this God, he says. 
He describes how he turned the events of that dreadful day over and over in his mind. He kept rerunning it, thinking if only I'd done this or not been there or if we'd taken a different turning or left a bit later. Or... And eventually it brought huge doubts to him. He simply says, maybe I thought there really is no God and no meaning to life. See, the problem of suffering raises huge questions. It can cause the strongest Christian to doubt the very existence of God. Uh, For some, it is a watertight argument against the existence of God. But here's the shock this morning, and, and I want you to carry this thought with you through the rest of this sermon, if you will. Here's the shock. Evil and suffering may be, if anything, evidence for God. That's what uh, Tim Keller says in this great book, uh, The Reason for God. Let me say it again. Evil and suffering may be, if anything, evidence for God. Now hold on to that and we'll understand that as we go through. It is this issue of suffering and justice that uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 to 22 grapples with, page 670. Now look at verse 16. Uh, The writer says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Uh, The writer of Ecclesiastes writes what we already know, namely that as we look at the world, rather than justice, we see wickedness. But the writer says this because of his particular position as he writes. All the way through the book, you'll see in verse 16, he uses this phrase, under the sun. He looks at the world, as George Michael sang, as if God already left the table. The writer uh, says, let's look at life as if God isn't involved in this world and see what we're left with. Life under the sun, life apart from God. Maybe God's in heaven, but he's not active in his world. You see, the writer isn't an atheist. He he believes there is a God, but he writes as as a functional atheist, functioning as if God didn't exist. He actually writes from the perspective of the deist, if you want the, uh, the, the theological term. Uh, we thought about it last week. What is the deist? The deist is the person who sees God as a cosmic watchmaker, who's made the, the, the universe, who's wound it up, and now it is ticking along. But he, the cosmic watchmaker, is off doing something else. He's either unwilling or unable to change the course of time. That's life, as it were, under the sun, verse 16. As if God were up there in the heavens, but playing no part in the world whatsoever. As if God were an absentee landlord, if you like. So the writer takes God out of the equation and shows us what we're left with all the way through the book. And here at the end of chapter 3, he looks at the problem of suffering and of injustice. Sure, on this particular subject, at this particular time, he only writes seven verses, so he's hardly going to give us a fully comprehensive answer to such a massive question. But what we do find in these verses is fascinating and it is a quite brilliant rationale to the problem of suffering. His first point, if you're still with me and uh, following on the handout. If you take God out of the equation, there is no justice in the world. Verse 16, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. See, often people bring up the issue of injustice in the world as a reason not to believe in Jesus Christ. The writer does exactly the opposite. View life from under the sun, verse 16, and wickedness still reigns, he says. Injustice still dominates, 
And that is a real problem for us. We can't live with injustice. That's not only Christians who feel that way. Unbelievers demand justice too, don't they? I think of one of the great national tragedies of recent years, the horrific shooting of 16 schoolchildren in Dunblane, Scotland. Do you remember it? It was about 9.30 in the morning of March the 13th, 1996. Thomas Hamilton, aged 43, left his home at number 7 Kent Road in Dunblane and drove to the Dunblane Primary School with a pair of pliers, four handguns and more than 700 rounds of ammunition. Once he'd arrived at the school, he cut the telephone wires on a nearby pole and then walked with the weapons in hand to a side entrance of the school. Hamilton burst into the assembly hall where a class of five and six-year-old children were having gym lessons and he opened fire. And in that moment of madness, 16 children aged five and six and one teacher were shot dead. Now, quite legitimately, you may ask, how do I square that sort of thing with a loving, just and sovereign Lord? That is an important question that needs to be grappled with. But as we look at this this morning, be sure taking God out of the equation doesn't solve the problem. See, verse 16, in the place of justice, wickedness was there. Take God out of the picture, wickedness still reigns. There's no justice. Indeed, we could ask, why do you even cry out for justice at all? See, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes how he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. But then, C.S. Lewis came to realise that evil was even more problematic for him as an atheist. In the end, Lewis concluded that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. Listen to C.S. Lewis on on this. I've I've put the the quote on on the handout there. He writes this. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Now, can you see what he's saying? Lewis's argument is brilliant. The problem of suffering in the world is not solved by concluding that there is no God, for suffering is still there and it bothers me. If there's no God, why does it bother me? There's no justice. No category that I can label justice if there's no God. The writer of the Ecclesiastes in verse 16 demonstrates that taking God out of the equation leaves you actually with a bigger problem. Because at the end of the day, if there is no God, then there is no justice in the world and there never will be. And that struck me the morning after the Dunblane tragedy. For some reason, I was watching daytime television. It's probably because I'm a vicar and I don't have anything else to do during the day. Um, But anyway, I hardly like to admit it, but I was watching Silk. Do you remember Robert Kilroy's Silk before he became an MEP? He used to have a... None of you would have watched it anyway. I'm telling you, he used to have a daytime television programme. Um, and they were discussing the events of the Dunblane tragedy that had happened the day before. And one of the guests on the show said this, one of the worst things for the parents is the thought that justice will never be done. Do you remember after his shooting spree, Thomas Hamilton turned the gun on himself? So justice will never be done. Thomas Hamilton will never be brought to book. 
another evil, uh, evil man has got away with murder. And that's the only conclusion if you take God out of the equation. And most of us can't live with that. It eats away at us. We demand justice. We can't live with injustice. But the Christian doesn't have to. See, the writer himself of Ecclesiastes can't bear the conclusion that without God involved, then there won't be any justice. So he quickly puts God back into the equation and he writes, verse 17, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. What a relief. There is a time for judgment. As the writer says at the end of verse 15, God will call the past to account. There is a time when justice will be done. The date is already in the diary. And the New Testament tells us more about that day. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, Jesus Christ. The verse goes on to say, we know this is going to happen because he's already raised Jesus from the dead. Now that's verse 17. Do you see? God will judge the righteous and the wicked. It will be a great and dreadful day. A day when not only the wicked are brought to book, but also the righteous, God's people, are vindicated. What a relief to know that justice will be done one day. But if we take God out of the equation, all we're left with is a world of wickedness and injustice, period. That's it. Take God out of the equation then and there's no justice. Uh, Second point over the page on the handout. Take God out of the equation and the writer shows us that we're just like the animals and death is the end. See verse 18. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. If we insist on living as if God were not there, or at least not interested, he, God tests us, or better, exposes us. He exposes where that thinking leads, and he says we're just like the animals. When we're dead, we're dead. Verse 19. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. Now again, you see, he's doing a brilliant thing. He's saying, you want to take God out of the equation? Let's see where that leads. When you die, you die. Can you live with that? Can you really accept that we're nothing more than naked apes? I guess some of you have been watching the, uh, the David Attenborough documentaries, Charles Darwin and the Tree of Life, celebrating the work of Charles Darwin on this, his 200th anniversary of his birth. In it, David Attenborough concludes that we're just the most developed of all the animals. We are the most developed, but at the end of the day, we are just animals. Oh, you may have met people like David Attenborough who purport to hold that view. But I am yet to meet anyone who carries it through to its logical conclusion when the rubber hits the road. Faced with death or your, your own death or the death of your loved ones, can you accept verse 19? Can you live with verse 19? Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. To dust all return. We breathe the same air as the animals. We end up as the same, in the same place as the animals. Dead in the ground. 
My five-year-old son, Joshua, wants to be an archaeologist when he grows up. Actually, he wants to be a paleontologist because he's so into dinosaurs. He can't say paleontologist at the moment, but he wants to be one. And, uh, and that's great. Now, if when he grows up you happen to go out with him uh, on an archaeological dig and uh, you find this ancient burial site of a warrior buried with his horse, what are you left with? Bones. Bones of a man and bones of a horse. And in verses 19 and 20 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the writer says there's no difference. If you take God out of the equation, that's all you have. Bones left. Death is the end. We're just like the animal. This life is all we have. And I want to ask you this morning, can you live with that? Go back to Dunblane. Do you remember the moving television uh, pictures of that fateful day? The pictures of hundreds of people lining up to go into the cathedral in Dunblane. See, faced with the death of precious little ones, those people weren't prepared to conclude that we're just like the animals. They rushed to the cathedral. I guess most of them weren't committed Christians, yet they flocked to the cathedral because they weren't prepared to conclude that there is no heaven. See, faced with the stark reality of suffering, of injustice and of death, they wanted to believe that there was a God. Because whether they'd worked it out beforehand or not, they'd realised the alternative was far too painful. Instinctively, it seems, they knew that taking God out of the equation didn't solve the problem, it made it worse. Their little ones were dead, that's it. Let me make it personal. In the past 18 years of pastoral ministry, I've conducted hundreds of funerals. And so I have sat and talked with hundreds of bereaved people. And in that time, I am yet to meet anyone who has just lost a loved one who does not want to know about life beyond the grave. I'm not saying there are none like that. I'm just saying I've never met someone. See, when it comes to it, most of us, if not almost all of us, don't believe verse 19. We don't believe that man's fate is like the animals. Not when it's our loved ones who've died. I'll take God out of the equation then and there is no justice. There's still wickedness reigns. Never to be any justice. Take God out of the equation. Secondly, we're just like the animals and death is the end. And then thirdly, well the third conclusion is horrifying and grotesque. Take God out of the equation and you must conclude that we're just like the animals and murder's not wrong. It's a horrible thing to say. Uh, We've touched on it already in the words of C.S. Lewis. Um, Verse 18, you see, raises the moral issue. As for men, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. This is the point. If there's no God, if we're just like the animals, as David Attenborough would have us believe, why are we bothered by great injustices at all? Why do we get worked up when we hear of tragedies like Dunblane? Indeed, why do we even call them tragedies? We're just like the animals. When did you ever get worked up about justice when you watch Wildlife on One One or Big Cat Diary? You see the cute little lion and and, and leopard cubs and you say, ah. You look at the contentment on the faces of those big cats as they lie around in the shade of the trees and you think, hmm. You see those big cats hunt down and then rip apart equally cute zebra or gazelle and you might call out yuck or or poor zebra but you never cry out for justice to be done. 
No one was ever so morally outraged by such a programme as to start a national campaign to bring the lions of the Serengeti to justice, to stand up for the cause of the gazelle. See, of course not, it's ridiculous, because they're animals, that's what they do. And the moment we think like that, we have been exposed. We don't think we're just like the animals, do we? And despite his rhetoric, I would guess that David Attenborough doesn't think that we're just like the animals. Not if it came down to an issue of justice and injustice. I think about the Dunblane tragedy. We're not prepared to take God out of the equation because the conclusion is, is too offensive. It is actually almost too offensive to say from a Christian pulpit. But I'll say it because it's dealt with here. In verse 18, the logical conclusion of concluding that there is no God is to say that the tragedy of Dunblane was not wrong. That Thomas Hamilton was doing nothing different to the lines of the Serengeti. Because in the animal world, sometimes they don't just kill for food, they just kill, because that's what they do. Isn't it horrible to think that way? The most vocal atheist in our society at the moment, Richard Dawkins, openly admits that the way to answer the problem of evil is to deny its existence. In other words, to say that there is no such thing as evil. And so he writes, and I've uh, put the quote on the sheet. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares and we dance to its music. Now do you see what Dawkins is saying? You and I, we're just the product of our makeup. You have no choice in what you do or who you are. DNA neither knows nor cares and we dance to its music. We're just DNA doing what we do. Imagine telling that to the young girl that's just been raped. The rapist wasn't at fault, he was just dancing to his DNA. It's just what he does. Imagine going to the victims of Auschwitz and saying that their tormentors were merely dancing to their DNA, that you shouldn't be morally outraged by their actions. Now, do you see how horrible and how offensive this is? But Dawkins understands that is the conclusion. And so do you see how suffering and evil may be, if anything, evidence for God, as Tim Keller says. Uh, the philosopher... Alvin Platinga says, said it like this, and again the quote is on the sheet. Could there be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing as evil only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think that there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. See, the writer of Ecclesiastes is brutally honest. 
when it comes to the issue of wickedness and injustice in our world, taking God out of the equation, concluding that God's not there, doesn't solve the problem. It actually makes it worse. So Tim Keller says in this excellent book, The Reason for God, he says this, It is a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon belief in God, it somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle. Let me conclude then. If there is no God, then one, there is no justice. Thomas Hamilton got away with murder and will never be brought to book. But the Christian believes that God will call the past to account, verse 15. The Christian is sure that God will bring evil to judgment, verse 17. Jesus Christ will judge the world. What a relief that is. One day all wrongs will be put right. Second, if there is no God, we're just like the animals and death is the end. The children of Dunblane are dead and that's it. And our loved ones are dead. There is no heaven. But the Christian knows that heaven awaits the believer. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. What a relief that is to know there's something beyond the grave. And third, if there is no God, then we're just like the animals and murder and injustice are categories that just don't exist. There is no moral framework. If there is no God, a moral framework is illogical and there's no rational reason to be upset about gross injustice because there is no category for justice or injustice. Dumb blame was just a part of life, nothing more than a lion killing a zebra. Why are we outraged by it at all? But instinctively, you see, we are instanced by such things. Rightly, I think, we're outraged and disgusted by the thought that there may be nothing wrong with such actions. Why? The Christian knows why. The Christian knows there is a framework to live by. Jesus summed up the moral law of the universe. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength and love your neighbour as yourself. What a relief that there is a framework that makes sense of our actions. Now, for sure, there are no easy answers to the problem of suffering. The Asian tsunami, Dunblane, Auschwitz, not to mention the personal tragedies of individuals in this congregation and millions of people all over the world. These are huge issues and there are no easy answers. Suffering will leave any thinking Christian with questions. But I'm appealing this morning that you please ask the questions and don't jump to the conclusion that God doesn't exist because that leaves you with far more problems and it is quite frankly completely terrifying